This podcast is a production of TSA Arts Watch. The spooky season has come and gone. Pumpkins have been harvested from their vines, as have the apples from their trees, and residual visions of ghosts, monsters, and ghouls are still on everyone's mind. The world of the paranormal encompasses an array of human experiences. Good, bad, terrifying, heartwarming, and sentimental. But what does it all mean? Is it real? Is it imagined? Is there truly a hidden side of reality that we can't explain? Or is it merely a device that we have conjured and found necessary to make sense of things we can't justify with our normal understanding of the world around us? In this episode, we have gathered the accounts of members of our student body and faculty to hopefully give us a greater understanding of things seen and unseen. Hi, my name's Isaac. My name's Lucas. And we'd like to welcome you to this year's first episode of the TSA Beat. Our first story is special in multiple ways. Not only was the event witnessed and experienced by more than one person simultaneously, but it is our only instance of perceived physical contact. TSA Development Department Representative Kim Bueller shares her tale. I'll give you the most recent one. So we moved into this house when Emma was 18 months old. So we've been here like 16 years. And she would always complain. She would say, I don't like that scary grandma. I don't like that scary grandma. And I didn't know what she was talking about. And I would feel this presence, like when I would go to sleep, I would it would feel like somebody would walk up to me and like just stand next to me while I was sleeping. And I would wake up in a panic and look around, there'd be nobody there. And about six months after we moved in, I was talking with a neighbor and she told me that Mrs. Brown had died in the house, in the room that Emma has. So. I, the next night, sure enough, because it, it happened every night, like every single night, I would feel this presence, like, stand by me. And I woke up and I said, Mrs. Brown, my name is Kim Bueller. We're the new family. We, this is not your house anymore. Your family doesn't live here. Um, but we love your home and we're going to take really, really good care of it. But your, your, your presence is scaring us and we need you to, to leave us. And after that night, none of us had any more weird experiences. I think she was worried about her house like she because if it would set feeling like she was just looking at us going who are you what are you doing in my house you know but Emma Emma said I don't like that scary grandma that's what she would say. I had this duplex with my boyfriend at the time I always felt weird in the basement of this house. Like, I just felt creeped out. And it was kind of old. It was like an older duplex, you know, in the west end of Toledo. And one night, our cat started losing his mind. And he was like, like, looking up in the corner of the bedroom. And I thought, what the hell is happening here? Basie's lost his mind. And kind of didn't think any more of it, went to bed, and all of a sudden I'm laying on my side and I felt, boom, a hand pushed me into the pillow on my face and it was like a smack, like with force. And Sean, my boyfriend at the time, 
saw it. He could see it. It was a white, like luminescent hand and forearm. And it was smacking me down. And I was like, help me, help me, help me. And he started to move and it went down my body and was gone. And it freaked me out so much that I like moved out. (laughs) I had to leave that place. It was so scary. It was definitely a menacing thing. How do you judge a ghost's intentions? What if they simply want to hang out? Theater instructor Melissa Toth shared her story of a seemingly friendly and playful spirit that left her a bit unsettled. I was living in an apartment with one of my really good friends, Matt Kopeck, and we lived there for about two years. Um, so the first six months, like, nothing happened. Uh, we were on the top floor of the apartment. Everything was completely fine. And after um, those six months, we started hearing um, this ball rolling uh, on our ceiling. We didn't think of anything of it. We were like, oh, it's probably like raccoons or something. So it was specifically in my bedroom and my roommate's bedroom, nowhere else in the apartment. There was a living room, a kitchen, and a dining room, nowhere else, just in our bedrooms. We would hear the ball rolling. And it sounded like a metal ball, and it would just roll across back and forth. Um, It wasn't every single day. It would just happen randomly. And then it started to stop in the middle of the ceiling and roll a different direction. Like, and we never heard any claws. We never heard anything else. We just started hearing this ball. And we were like, this is really weird because we were on the top floor. No one was above us. Then we started hearing laughter. In the corners of our rooms, we would hear kids laughing, just little laughter. We were just like, what is this? And it would happen like during the day. It never really happened at night. So we started just coming together and being like, okay, maybe we just have these like nice little kid ghosts. Didn't think a lot of it, but the big moment was I woke up in the morning. Uh, We had school start at eight. So I had to be at ballet at eight o'clock. So I was getting up around seven and um, I have an alarm go off. About five minutes before my alarm, I felt something at the edge of my bed. I felt pressure, like someone was almost sitting at the edge of my bed. So I I sat up very quickly. I cannot make this up. I saw a footprint on one of my legs, like on the side of it, and then another footprint, like they were walking over my body. And it was the most terrifying, like I have goosebumps thinking about it. It was in the morning. It wasn't in the middle of the night. Like I was up and I'm seeing these footprints go over my body. I screamed, I ran to my, um, my roommate's room, told him what happened, and I didn't sleep in that room for um, a week. I was really scared, I was like, what is going on? That was like the big moment, and from then on, we kind of talked a little bit like to them, and we were like, hey, you know, we're here, we don't mean any harm, we just want to be in peace and nothing like that where they came into contact with me ever happened again I feel like we came to a like a truce like a you be you will be me and um, we ended up calling um, we don't know if it was a boy or a girl we called them Susie Um, so (laughs) Susie lived with us and hung out with us and that's my story 
clairvoyance, the supposed faculty of perceiving things or events in the future or beyond normal sensory contact. We talked to several folks within our community who claim to have such sensitivities and have found that it's not entirely as uncommon as we thought. Please continue to listen as senior Ella Colbreth tells a riveting tale that happened in Ohio's famously haunted reformatory. So, have you ever heard of Mansfield Reformatory? No. Okay, it is basically, it was a place that low-level criminals would go. They ran out of space. It was so packed there that these small, small rooms were holding like three grown men at a time. A lot of bad stuff happened there. There's two main areas for the prison areas. Um, So there's the west and the east wing. My mom, me, the girl who I was with, and the girl's mom, we all go into the west wing, I'm pretty sure is what it was. But we were just walking, and I felt a ton, a ton of heat. Like, to the point where I felt like my skin was peeling off. I had passed one of the one of the jail cells and I felt that and I felt someone like grab me and it felt like that was burning even more than the other one was and so I pulled away really quickly and I whipped my head over to look in the jail cell itself and there was nothing obviously and so my mom's noticing this and she knows she knows that I'm really really sensitive because she is too we both of us are pretty sensitive on our own. She notices and asks if I'm okay, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, but make sure we stay away from that room. And she's like, okay, cool. And so we keep walking, we keep walking, we keep walking to the end of the stairwell, and we go into what was the shower room for that side, and we're just kind of looking around, and I thought I felt something grab my hand, and so I turn around, and I saw someone in like a window and I whipped back around because I know that if I make eye contact or anything like that, they'll recognize that I'm there and they'll see my spirit and they'll like connect two and two and be like, hey, this person's someone who, can, who we can mess with. We finally get out of that room and then we go up the stairs because there's like five levels to this one side of the jail cells. And so we go up one, one level and we're walking down and we pass another cell and my mom grabs me and grabs the railing behind her and like almost falls to the ground because she had felt immense pressure and ringing in her ears. And we later found out that the guy who, one of the guys who lived in that room had gotten shock therapy and was electrocuted to death as his like final punishment thing. And then as we were heading out of that room, because we the next plane was going into solitary confinement, which was under that room. So on our way out, I look up, because I thought someone was looking at me, like, oh, maybe someone's just looking down at me. I've got this giant purple dress on. Maybe they're just looking at my dress. And I look up, and I see someone whose face is so just dirty and gross, and their clothing's all tattered. And I typically see things and feel things. Um, my mom more hears things and like sees things as a projection in the back of her mind. So I whip my head up and I'm looking at them and I'm like, who are you? I didn't, I don't think I've seen you 
when we were out like all gathered together and I was looked down at my mom and was like do you, do you see that person and she goes who because apparently no one was sticking their head over from the bar I realized what I did and I made eye contact which is something I was not supposed to do so then we go to the solitary confinement area and so my dumb self decided to lead the way we're going down a little further down this hallway and it's really dark and so we get down to the end and I turn the corner and I just see this really 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 dark figure just towering over me my mom saw it too and she pulled me away really quickly because apparently I didn't realize what was going on but she also saw that really big dark figure like he was it was obviously a male energy I don't I couldn't pick up on either it was good bad neutral or anything like that I just saw this just giant black mass in the doorway to like the hardcore solitary confinement we, we pretty much just speed walk our way out of the solitary confinement area because it was so terrifying and as soon as we got out of there I like felt this weight just lift off my shoulders Of course, everything has a duality. If you're going to give credence to the believers, it is also a healthy exercise to take into account the skeptics in our midst. We could think of no one better to represent this viewpoint than our very own science guru, Mr. Ken Burchett. Not surprisingly, I'm a, per I'm a person who, you know, is more into the idea of things that can be empirically proven. You know, like science appeals to me for that reason. It's not something I've ever really seen convincing evidence for. Uh, anecdotal stuff, but nothing that's ever really stood up to the hard proof requirements, you know, of actual scientific research. I would need empirical proof uh, that meets, you know, peer review standards of scientific research. I would need it to be coming from multiple sources, including sources that are all, that are already skeptical. And I have some anecdotal evidence of myself that, that tends to make, make me think that most of the people who are pushing this forward aren't doing so for reasons that are entirely honest. My husband's director down at the library down in Bowling Green, and they have this really cool Victorian house. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. And they use it for meeting space. And shortly after they've done a job refurbishing this house, a production company wanted to come in and actually use it to tape one of those ghost hunter type shows. When they were asked about it, they said, well, there aren't any ghost stories that go with this house. I said, oh, there don't need to be. Like, we're just going to make them up. And then that's just what they do. I, I think that the the belief in ghosts in, in some way, you know, comes from a, a, a place almost of fear. It's so existentially terrifying to think that, is there something after we're alive? Is there is there not? That I think they find the idea of living people being able to still be around, even after that, I think they find comfort in that. But the problem is, is that there's no real proof. And then whenever you try to talk to anyone about it, they say, well, you can't prove that it doesn't happen. Well, I mean, there's no way. It's logically impossible to prove that anything doesn't happen. That's not how proving things works. The key is that you have to prove that it does. I mean, what do you say to people's people's delusions? I mean, it's people have them. They need them. I guess if it's not if it's not doing any harm, it's just not not a conversation I feel like I need to have. Because generally speaking, if a person believes in magical thinking anyway, 
<laughs> their interest in actual evidence is very, very small. The last couple of years have proven just how true that is. Once people go down the magical thinking rabbit hole, they're not coming back. Supernatural experiences in our popular culture are, for the most part, spoken of using mostly negative language. People's encounters with spirits are said to be eerie, sinister, abnormal, overbearing, or spooky. However, that is not everybody's experience. If we are to believe that negative forces exist in the world unseen, should we not also assume that the opposite exists as well? These spirits that now supposedly haunt us must have once been living, breathing people. They could have even been our family. TSA choir teacher and general music extraordinaire Jamie Dowell graces us with her presence to share some experiences of her own. So here's my ghost story. Um, my whole life I have felt connected to or um, visited by the other world. And I think I inherited that from my grandmother and my mom, who are very reasonable, don't really believe in things they can't see people. Um, but they, too, have many encounters with the other side. So my biggest personal one was after my dad died. When he passed away, we wanted his wedding ring on him in the casket for the funeral and could not find it. Well, two weeks before, he'd taken it off when he went into the hospital and gave it to my mom, and she believed she put it in her purse. Well, here we come, need to give the funeral home the jewelry and the clothes, and cannot find the ring. So in his drawer at home, we locate his old wedding ring right next to my grandmother's old wedding ring. And we just had him wear that for the funeral, got it back, all was well. Except that my mom really wanted the actual current wedding ring. Couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And I'm helping around the house. And shortly after his funeral, I started having like my brain, I repeated, phrase in my head. It's in the pocket. It's in a pocket. It's in a pocket. It's in a pocket. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I could have looked through all of his clothes in the closet. So in the closet I go, I look through every pair of pants pocket, every suit coat, every dress shirt. Not there. It's in a pocket. It's in a pocket. It's in a pocket. I'm asking myself, why is this happening? Why do I keep thinking about this ring being in a pocket. In his drawers, then, through all the clothes that had pockets, it's not there. And I start talking to him. Dad, if that's you saying it's in a pocket, I'm telling you, I've looked through every pocket, it's not there. So we let it go. It's Memorial Day weekend, May 2014, and my mom is coming up for the weekend. On Saturday night, when we're all in bed, She's coming to church with my husband in the morning. I have a dream. I see my mom with her purse, dumping it out on my guest room bed, and there's the ring. I just think, oh, I'm still thinking about that wedding ring. But Sunday morning, we have church, we have lunch, we go home. And I say to my mom, 
I know you've said you've been through that purse a hundred times, but I'm asking you to do what was in my dream. It's in a pocket, and I think the pocket is your purse. I think Dad has sent me this dream. And my mom starts to cry, and she says, I had that same dream. I go, okay, well, let's go dump out the purse. On the bed, we dump out the purse, and out of the interior pocket of her purse comes this ring. And she says to me, I have checked that pocket several times. I go, I know, I, I can't explain it, but dad says it was in a pocket and there it is. And never did I have that thought again. Now, I work for a church that's 135 years old, historic church in the old south end of Toledo. And there I routinely get visited by spirits that I think visit there, may probably people who went to church there, may have had funeral services there or something, but they visit me through smell. Like all of a sudden, I'll feel like not alone, and I smell a very strong scent, and then the scent goes away, and I can't make the scent come back. When you smell something that's actually in the air, it hangs in the air, and it comes slowly or it comes quick, but it dissipates. And in these instances, it comes immediately, and it isn't a dissipation. It leaves as suddenly as it came, like a switch. Yep, it is just there. And um, sometimes uh, there's a coolness near me at the same time. On one occasion, my husband was sitting near me facing, like facing me. I was sitting at the organ and the seat he was sitting in sort of faced me. And he suddenly looked up. He thought somebody, he said somebody looked like they were behind me. But when he looked up, it was gone. But at that very same time, I had had a smell. So I'm pretty sure maybe the old church organist comes to visit me occasionally. He's probably judging me harshly, but <laughs> he never hurts me or bothers me. Um, one of the people that visits me smells like those pink, round, soft, mint candies. They're kind of an old-fashioned candy. Maybe you can still get them. But... And the other person smells quite decidedly like Aquanet hairspray, which I know because I had big hair in the 80s, so I was a can-a-week user of Aquanet. That's a, that's a scent I know. And it's kind of strange that, boom, it's Aquanet, Aquanet gone. And, and people tell me that the mint scent is the former organist because he had um, stomach issues and often ate mints um, and smelled like mint when you're around him. And another parishioner has told me that she thinks the Aquanet person is her aunt who sang in the choir her whole life, had a big big kind of set hairdo that probably was set with that hairspray and always either by the organ in the organ loft or the choir loft or over in the front corner of the church where the piano resides. Those are the only locations I've ever smelled them. 
Um, my mom, for a period of time while living in a particular house over in the Black River School District area, over um, kind of a little south of Cleveland area, my mom um, dreamed dreams or had visions of things that were going to happen. My mom predicted my uncle was about to be hurt badly by a piece of farm equipment. Moments before he was actually hurt badly by a piece of farm equipment. And you have to understand, they weren't in the same place. She couldn't see him. She couldn't hear. They were probably two, three miles distance from each other when she understood something bad was going to happen. Um, she knew that my aunt was in a car accident in the middle of the night before the phone rang. She got her parents up, my grandma and grandpa, and said, you know, Kathy's been in a car accident. And they're like, no, no, she's fine. We phone hasn't rang. Nobody's called. Nobody's reached out to us. And within about 15 minutes, the phone rang, and my aunt had been in a car accident. My mom says that after she didn't live in that house anymore, it never happened again for her. She's never had any more incidents like that. My grandmother says that when living in that house, she regularly saw her children doing things in groups, in places, in the house, out in the yard, over by the barn, only to turn around in moments to find her kids other places. And they couldn't have gotten from the place she saw them to the place they were in the amount of time. So she came to understand that she was seeing children that were not hers, like visions of kids, you know. Um, also stopped happening for her when they didn't live in that house anymore. Now for my grandma though, um, one more thing happened and it was the day my grandpa, her husband died. Um, she was home alone. My grandfather was in a memory care facility. He died in the daytime. Uh, my grandma was at home um, preparing to do something that required her to walk down the hallway in her house. And as soon as she was getting to the hallway, she heard her father, my great-grandfather, laugh out loud. And she knew that my grandfather had apparently just passed away because the only way she'd hear her dead laugh was somebody to be with him that he loved very much, and that would have been my grandpa. So she immediately dialed the phone to the memory care facility, and they're like, how did you know? We hadn't even gotten around to calling you yet. He, he literally just died. That's how she knew. She knew from hearing her father's laugh. And it's the last thing for her, too, that ever happened. My mom, when I was a kid, always referred to it as a gate, that there are gateways to other places and that that one happened to be a positive light. I think for me, what's strange is I'm not trying to dial into it. I didn't ask for it. I'm not seeking it out. I won't say I don't want it because it hasn't been a problem, but I mean, wasn't something I was like, oh, I hope, 
you know, I can connect to the other side. Um, it, it just exists for me, and I understand that it's there. Our next story may just be our spookiest. TSA video and film production teacher Megan Ahern shared a riveting tale of what happens when urban legends and ghost hunting end up giving you more than you bargained for. So one significant one, I don't want to like name the place because it's like low-key dangerous, like to be honest, Um, but there's this place in Sylvania. It's outdoors and there's like an urban legend that goes along with it. And um, when you get to this spot, you're supposed to turn off your car, put the keys on the dash, and have all of your windows down. And a lot of people will also, like, sprinkle flour and stuff, like, all over their car and have taken pictures with, like, handprints or, like, footprints, like, in the dust of the flour. So I went there with my friend Zach, and (laughs) we pull up to this spot, and he takes out his keys, puts it on the dash, and I'm just like, whatever, bro. (laughs) This fake, like, whatever, dude, whatever. So all of a sudden, like, the clock on his car radio comes on, like, at random, And I look over at him, and I was like, don't play me, dude. Like, this is not even funny. Like, I don't know where I am. Don't do me like this, you know? And he's like, I'm not doing anything. I'm serious. And I was like, give me your hands. So I'm holding his hands. Because I didn't trust him. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like, you're messing with me. Then the radio comes on. Like, music from the car. Headlights come on. I'm not even joking you right now and windshield wipers. And I'm like, bro, drive, drive, drive. And he's like, no, we came all the way out here and you didn't believe me and you're gonna sit here and you're gonna deal with it. And I'm like, I literally hate you. We're over, like we are no longer friends. So I'm sitting there trying to be cool, trying to be tough, trying to, you know, and I could hear footsteps in the gravel behind me and I swear something was like next to my window which was open next to my window and then I heard like it ran off bro I'm not gonna die today like I'm not here not for you not for this ghost like this is not so I had a camera with me right like digital camera I didn't have a cell phone with a camera at the time okay and um I just started taking pictures And I take a picture right outside of my passenger seat window. You couldn't see any of the trees that were right in front of me. It was this red fog. um, And you could see like a pair of aviator sunglasses in there and a pair of braided pigtails and like some indistinguishable faces. Like, but you couldn't see a single tree that was like 15 feet away from me. And I showed him the picture and he w- uh, we were just like kind of freaking out, like kind of, kind of, you know, what do we do, you know? And I was like, like, would you, would you be willing to communicate with us using the car? 
if if the answer is yes turn on the lights and the headlights like flashed and so in the picture like I saw multiple faces right so I was like are you by yourself and the headlights went off and I was like are you with other people and the headlights came on and I'm like, bro, bro, <laughs> you know, and we're like asking it all of these questions and everything. And like the lights are cut, like it's responding to us. Like it, it was a real moment. And I'm like snapping pictures and there's like all these like, um, orby forms that are cut, like, not just like, you know, dust or like insects or like whatever, like some actual blocking things behind it forms. It was insane. Um, and then there's, there's like a, a neighbor to the area that is not happy about all the teenagers that do ghost hunting there. And he chased us off the property. So it kind of ended there and we never went back, but that was probably one of, one of my scariest and like closest encounters. It was wild. I think that place still exists. Um, but it's the scariest place I've ever been to. We've all heard of it, and most of us have experienced it at some point. Is it our minds playing nasty tricks on us in pre-consciousness? Or are we, through that world in between dreaming and awakening, finally able to see beyond the veil for a brief moment? TSA senior Tony Williams shares his terrifying story. All right, so look, man, I think I was about like, 12, 13, and I was living in Cleveland. We was living in the Heights. We had finally, we even got out of the bath. Uh, but we moved into like this old little house and we was renting it out, you know. We ain't have a lot of furniture or nothing there, but you know, the house was smooth, you know. But my first night, you know, sleeping, I couldn't sleep. Like, you know, I just was happy I had to go to school, you feel me? I'm not gonna be attacked by bandits, you know, good ideas. <laughs> but, I wake up, and I wake up hot, like, my body just sweating, drooping. So I go in the bathroom, and I splash some water on my face, you know, so I chill out. And then I hear, I hear uh, the door close, and I ain't nobody there. My mama worked nights. She had to work a lot. She had to work real heavy because there wasn't nobody else working. It was just my mama, and it was just me. So the door closed. I go, and I open it. I'm like in here so ain't nobody in there I just leave it alone the next day come you know I didn't walk to school I didn't got back home Ah, you know go make me some noodles <laughs> you know <laughs> some ramen y'all know what it is but I get ready to lay down and go to sleep again and I go in my mom's room this time cause she got the big bed you feel me with the big pillows so I just go and lay in there I wake up, and it's a lady standing on top of me, like, looking at me. Like, I'm looking at her like, this is real. Like, I'm, I'm like, get off of me. Like, that's what I'm saying. But I'm stuck. It's like I can't move. I can't do nothing. So my eyes finally go back to sleep, and I wake up. But I see a lady in the corner in an all-black dress. Now, you know, a day later, I talk to my mom, and I tell her. She said, did you know that? A wife died in this house. 
and the husband was so sad. That literally is what happened. Like, it was crazy, for real. Like, I couldn't move at all, like, you know. And even still, like, I still have a, I can represent her face. Like, I can see her face in my mind, you know. It was like, she had, like, one of those black wedding dresses on, and her eyes was, like, looking into my eyes. And, like, they looked like reptilian, like, just weird, like, just wrong. Like, she was not supposed to be there. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's the end of this story, you know, Captain Crunch. So far, we have heard direct accounts of the hidden world. Some exciting, some heartbreaking, some terrifying. But what if we zoomed out the lens more? Collectively, what do these accounts say about us culturally? Is it all simply a commentary on how we as humans grieve and process death? Or is there something more to it? TSA faculty member Taylor Moyer, in addition to having potential experiences of his own, provided us with some thoughtful commentary on that very subject. As a historian in Northwest Ohio, I worked at the Oliver House in downtown Toledo for about six years, and I worked with a medium, clairvoyant, and empath. And my job was to research and find if there was any documentation that supported any of the visions, feelings, or experiences the clairvoyant and empath had at the historic Oliver House. That was a major part of my work for six years here in downtown Toledo, uh, with the spirit world specifically. Then also being a historian and a living historian, I have spent a lot of time at historic sites in Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio, you know, staying the night there, sleeping at the museums on site for historic events, which if we know anything about historic sites, they oftentimes have ghost stories associated with them. A lot of people have died at the places that I've stayed, and then I am very fortunate to be able to sleep at those places. So I've kind of always been around sites that are associated with death, dying, in the spirit world. So for myself, when it comes to actual experiences, one particular time that I was at an event at Fort Meigs Memorial Park in Perrysburg, Ohio, I was camped there for the weekend, and really, really, really late at night, I got up to go to the restroom. And as I was walking towards the restroom, I passed a gentleman who was dressed in full uniform. He was carrying a musket with him. He had his shako or hat on. And we did look right at each other. And he kind of nodded and I kind of nodded. If you stereotypically think about that Midwestern politeness nod, you might give somebody in the grocery store as you awkwardly shuffle past them. It was kind of similar to that. There was no audible speaking that happened from either one of us. And as I passed him and got a little ways away from him, I thought, you know what? It's like three o'clock in the morning. When we were at reenactment events, People do not stay in their clothing the entire time, dressed in period attire. There would be no reason for this person who kind of looked like they'd be on duty or patrol to be walking around at three in the morning. And as I turned around to see where he went or if he was still there, he was gone. He was totally gone. Now, I am not saying that he vaporized or he disappeared, but the next day I did find it really odd. And I went and I spoke with the director of the museum at the time, 
and explained the story. And as I was telling the story, he kind of started to smirk. And he explained to me that on the particular site of the fort that I was at, that they have an entire file on reports of this gentleman who seems to be on patrol, dressed in full uniform, carrying his musket between the particular area of the fort that I was on. I said, so what you're telling me is, is I just saw a ghost. I saw a ghost last night. And the director of the fort says, if that's what you want to call it, I suppose we could say that maybe you saw a ghost. He said, what I'm saying is, is you saw a soldier on patrol at three in the morning and we don't have any reenactors doing that work. That's really the first and probably largest experience that I've had where I don't know what I saw, but I know what I saw. And the director of the fort seemed to feel that what I saw was a soldier who might have been from a different time period than myself. I was giving a haunted brew tour at the Oliver House in downtown Toledo, and on those haunted brew tours, the clairvoyant empath, the medium, this is one person. When I say those three different terms, it's not three different people. This is one individual, living human person, who claims to be a clairvoyant, an empath, and a medium, which means this person believes that they can see, feel, and hear spirit. We were giving a tour. When the tour was done, the individual asked, how do you feel that that tour went? I said, pretty good. Why? She said, did you feel like anybody was watching you? And, you know, trying to maintain my professionalism, I kind of laughed and I said, yeah, the 25 people that were on the tour. And she said, the entire time that you were giving this tour, there's a gentleman following you, kind of like from behind, watching at a distance. And I could see where she was steering the conversation. She was insinuating that she was seeing a spirit, if you want to call it a ghost, that was following me. And me being in that role of the historian, you know, a professional scholar, you know, I'm not one to immediately lean in and be like, oh, okay, tell me about it. I, I want to maintain that, you know, as, as much as possible, that professionalism line between both of us. So I said, okay. Uh, what did this person look like? And she said, well, it was a male. He had shorts on. He had a white polo shirt, small little logo in the upper corner. Uh, he had white tennis shoes on with a kind of navy blue N on them. Glasses, gray, balding hair. And I said, okay. Still trying to maintain my professionalism. Realizing, though, that what this person was describing to me was very much the clothing and the attire that my grandfather wore. And I asked some more specific questions about the appearance, and the clairvoyant proceeded to give very specific details that were very much that of my grandfather, who died when I was in eighth grade. I'm telling you, I do not know how that individual could have such a visual reference point to my grandfather. I do not have photos of my grandfather on social media. I had never talked about my grandfather. My grandfather died when I was in eighth grade. Social media was not a thing at that time, unless I guess you want to talk about MySpace, which I was not using. I have no way to know how that clairvoyant empath or medium possibly could have had a visual reference or clue in to what my grandfather looked like, how he walked. I said, okay, so where is, where, where is he right now? 
And she said when that tour ended, he left with the other people. He was like, good. It's, he was just checking in on me, wanted to go on the tour, went along the tour behind me, and that was the end of it. I said, okay. And I left it very professional, didn't get emotional about it, and just kind of moved on. So that's a very, very direct moment, personal, intimate moment that happened that the clairvoyant and empath brought up. I didn't bring it up. I wasn't seeking out to connect to nobody that night. That's where she went with it. So you can take it or leave it. That's up to you. So when I think about the way our American culture talks about and feels about ghosts, we have a lot of different terms that people use, ghosts, spirits, and then sometimes that bleeds into conversations about demons. And, you know, at one point in Christianity, they referred to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost. And then eventually that got changed. You know, it went from the Holy Ghost to the Holy Spirit. Really, no matter what we call it, we term it, spirit, ghost, entity, manifestation, whatever you call it, the reality is, is that we are talking about a person's soul. And in some cases, for some people, the lack thereof. And when we think about a person's soul and what makes us us, the reality is, is that most Americans in some way feel very uncomfortable about death and dying. And one way we try to fill in that void is through conversations about ghosts and spirits. When we think about death and dying, we either have to confront it by laughing about it or being really scared of it. And I think that's why when we talk about ghosts, especially during this time of the year, if somebody professes that they've had a ghostly experience or they've seen a ghost or they believe in ghosts, there will be a large body of people who laugh at those people. To not believe in ghosts goes another direction and we think that if when somebody we love dies, we feel emotionally grieved by that. It's painful, it, hurt, it hurts, it's hard. It's hard to process. And we often say that a piece of them will always live on with us forever. If you think about it that way, that means a part of that person's spirit, their soul, if you want to call it a ghost, there's a little bit of that ghost of that person who will live on in for us, with us forever. So when we get into conversations about are ghosts real, are ghosts not real, the reality is what we're really talking about here is when we die, do we live on? And if the living continue to remember us, they think about us, they absolutely continue to have an emotional relationship with us even after we're dead, then in one way I guess ghosts are real. Because after we die, people memorialize us, they celebrate us, they remember us for who we were. And if we're living on through other people and a piece of us never dies, our love for those people never die and they stay inside of our hearts, our minds, what have you, then in a way, ghosts are very much real. Spirits are very much real. A piece of that person will live on with us ultimately until we die. But I think we like to isolate things. We like to have a yes or a no answer. And I almost think as the humanities teacher, it would be improper of me to say, are ghosts real or are they not real? What I think is real is death. And what also I think is real is our human emotion about death. So in a way, it's kind of yes and it's kind of a no.
The TSA Beat is a production of Toledo School for the Arts and is available on TSA streaming service ArtsWatch. You can find other TSA productions and performances on ArtsWatch by visiting ts4arts.org. That is TS, the number four, arts.org. Or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or your favorite social media outlets. Special thanks to our guests who so wonderfully shared their stories. TSA faculty and students Kim Bueller, Melissa Toth, Ella Colbreth, Ken Burchette, Jamie Dowell, Megan Ahern, Tony Williams, and Taylor Moyer. Music and score for this episode was provided by Isaac Slater, Lucas Madrazo, and Dream Louder. The TSA Beat is written and produced by Isaac Slater and Lucas Madrazo. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you tune in again next time. Have a good one.